Good morning, everyone. There is something appropriately sobering about standing in front of a group of people and opening up the Bible and presuming to speak about what it says, what God has to say. And so that song reminds us of that. I want to ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And when you find that, I want to ask you to stand if you're able. And we're not going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 today, but I want to remind you we've been through the whole chapter. And I've memorized, I know some of you are memorizing this, I've memorized the whole chapter and then into chapter 2 verse 3. And I've actually thought about the last couple of weeks, you know, I should probably get up here and actually prove it to you. And something keeps stopping me, not fear, but really just going, I don't know if I want to, it would feel weird like I'm doing this recitation or something. And so I, I'm, I don't know, maybe it'll come out at some point, but I'm just going to read the first three verses of chapter two. So put away all malice. And all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that we would truly experience you as good. We have seen you do so many good things. Lord, we have, we have experienced your grace and your mercy and your love. And Lord, we, we are dependent upon you. Lord, we, we want to grow. Sometimes we get frustrated by our lack of growth. Sometimes we don't even know what's holding us back. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the answers by your spirit, through your word, even today, by your grace. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Today I'm talking about growing up in Christ. I know it's kind of an interesting word that Peter, the way he says it, grow up to salvation, grow into salvation. A lot of people claim to know what you need to grow in Christ. A lot has been written, a lot has been spoken about what does it take to grow as a Christian. And some of you say, well, yeah, I I know that. And others of you are like, you know, I, I know it, but I'm frustrated because I feel like I'm not growing. You might not know what's holding you back. And you might wonder, actually, what does it really take to grow in Christ? And what I want to tell you today is it's probably simpler than you think. And and yes, the answer is right under your nose because it it really is in these three verses of 1 Peter chapter 2 has the answer. Have you ever heard or, or said these words? Why don't you just grow up? Have you heard that before? Have you said that before? Why don't you just grow up? I have heard it and I have spoken it. What does it mean? to grow up does it just mean to be taller and stronger and faster i remember back in the 70s when i showed up to the first day of 11th grade in high school i was six inches taller than i was when school had let out in june everyone's like something happened to you you're not five one any longer people noticed 
But is that all it's about? Maybe getting taller or getting stronger or able to run faster? I think we all know that isn't what it is. It goes so much more deep. It's, it's about maturity. It's about depth and, and experience in life. But you might feel like Mike Iaconelli did when he wrote these words. My life is a mess. When I look back at the yesterdays of my life, what I see mostly is a broken, irregular path littered with mistakes and failure. Most of the moments of my life seem hopelessly tangled in a web of obligations and distractions. I feel like I'm running away from Jesus into the arms of my own clutteredness. The only consistency in my life is my inconsistency. You might feel like that at times. We want to grow. We want to see progress. But often we experience frustration, maybe even stagnation and, and confusion about about what does it really mean to grow in Christ. So how do you know if you're growing as a believer? I think if you boil it down to its most simple thing is, do you love Jesus more than anyone or anything, including your sin? Do you love the Word of God? I think that would be, that would be a good test. I, I, if I'm reading through 1 Peter as I'm memorizing it, it has struck me how, how awesomely, beautifully focused Peter is on the Lord Jesus Christ. I was just looking at it even again this morning, and I, I just went through the entire chapter 1 and into chapter 2, and how many times he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times he, he talks about the Lord. How many times he talks about what, he has, what Christ has done. And he's just so fixated on, on Jesus. I love it. It's a key to growth. I'm going to be highlighting three key words in this passage today that are key to your growth in Christ. I'll warn you right now, they are Greek words. I know sometimes I use them, sometimes I don't. But I'm going to actually give you these three Greek words because they are truly key to your growth in Christ. The first word is oxano. The second word is apotithemi. And the third word is epipatheo. It's Greek. But I'd write them down if I were you. First of all, oxano means growth. You want to grow in Christ? You need, you need to have apotithemi then. That's the idea of laying aside sin. Verse 1 talks about but you also need epipatheo, which is longing for the Word of God. It's really that simple. If you want to grow in Christ, you need to lay aside sin, get rid of it, and long for the Word of God. If you want oxano, you need a lot of apotithemi and epipatheo in your life. Lots and lots and lots of it. So you should write these down and... And think about this, okay? So the first thing we're going to look at is verse 1 and this idea of apotithemi. Verse 1 starts, so. Some of your translations will say therefore. It's the same idea. So or therefore, based upon all that Peter has already said, put away apotithemi. What? What are they supposed to put away? Bad stuff. Sin. You look at the things in verse 1, you're like, those aren't good. 
I mean, if you know that the things in verse 1 aren't good, just raise your hand. You say, those are bad. Some of you aren't convinced. Okay. We're talking about malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. How many of you think those are bad things? 100%. It's the way I like that. When it comes to something like this, it's sin that harms other people. This isn't loving. That's what Peter's been talking about right before this, that you should love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't please God. It's contrary to the word of God. So he says, put away sin. Apotithemi. You need this. It's this extreme rejection of sin. It's not like, hey, you're eating a cookie and you realize, let me eat my sandwich first. I'll, I'll set this cookie aside to go get later. This is a complete ridding of these things from your life. So put away, doesn't mean put it in its place so you can use it and know where to find it, but get rid of it completely out of your life. Apotithemi. You need a lot of that in your life. You need an extreme rejection of sin in your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But let's do a little bit of review. He starts with this word therefore, or so, He's writing to suffering Christians. And he first is encouraging them with this beautiful, God-centered gospel truth about how they have come to faith in Christ. And he engages them in the process. He says, you don't see him, but you love him. You don't see him, but you believe in him. And so they're into it. And then he tells them, here's how you respond to the gift of salvation. He gives them four commands, four imperatives. First was, Fix your hope, started at verse 13, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, you fix your hope on future grace. Number two, he says, be holy in all your behavior. God is making you holy. He's conforming you to the image of Christ. And then he tells them, he says, fear your heavenly father. Live with a healthy fear of God, of displeasing him and incurring his discipline upon your life. The last thing we saw was that he, he says, and this is an imperative, love your brothers and sisters in Christ. So these, these four imperatives, these four commands. He says, love them. Agape love, agapao, God's love. It's, a God of, it's the love of choice. It's the love of the will. It's, it's the highest level of love possible. He's telling them to stretch as far as they can in going as far as they can in showing love in a very real way where the rubber meets the road. And, and to do that with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you need apotithemi. You need to get rid of some things out of your life. Peter lists five. Now, there's other places in the New Testament that have other lists that don't have all the same things. Here he's talking about things that are not loving, things that harm other people. The first one, he says, is malice. That's the word for wickedness. It's the idea of having evil intent and the inevitable actions that harm others as a result of that motive. It's not just having the motive to harm someone. It's actually taking the action to bring about the harm. He says, get rid of all malice. It's a, kind of an umbrella term. It's an overarching term. But then he says... Get rid of all deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander. 
Interesting point to note is that each one of the next four words, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, are all in the plural. Get rid of deceits and hypocrisies and envies and slanders. So deceit is, is the word for a trap or a bait. It's like a fish hook. And it, it, the idea is guile. The idea is hurting others through trickery, through falsehood. Think about Nathaniel. He was spoken of as an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. This is being full of insincere trickery and falsehood that hurts other people. So malice, deceit. And then the third word is hypocrisy. Falseness masking an inward evil by looking righteous on the outside. Jesus saw right through that with the Pharisees. He saw their hypocrisy. He even said, you know, on the outside you look good to people, you look outwardly righteous, but inwardly you're full of all hypocrisy and wickedness. Interestingly about hypocrisy, Paul mentioned hypocrisy in Galatians chapter 2 regarding Peter. And I can imagine as the Holy Spirit is telling Peter, write down the word hypocrisy, he's thinking to himself, oh, like the time that Paul had to call me on the carpet in front of everybody because I was being hypocritical. Paul called him out for hypocrisy. He says, get rid of all that, malice, deceit, hypocrisies, and envy. Envy is the opposite of thankfulness for good that comes into someone else's life. It's like your friend or your relative gets something really good and instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, you're angry, you're resentful that you didn't get the thing that they got that you really want. And then slander. Slander means to to work really hard to put someone down to harm their reputation, to harm their status, to defame them so they wouldn't be famous. They would be known for something bad. They would have a bad reputation. So you're saying something about someone in order to to hurt their reputation. The thing about these is that they're all sins that hurt other people. They're all sins that, that hurt other people through words. We all get taught that little rhyme, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never harm me. And we know it's not true. You all have been harmed by words. You will all remember words that were spoken to you far more than you remember sticks and stones that broke your bones. You remember words for a long, long time. You might forget when a stick or a stone bumped into you and gave you a bruise or even broke a bone, but you remember certain words that are really, really good and certain words that are really, really bad your whole life. How much of life has to do with the words we use and the choices we make about what we will say to someone? Psalm 141.3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. It is so easy to forget the power of, of words. It is so easy to forget that even the tone of words make an impact we forget until someone uses them on us to either encourage us or discourage us then we remember then we know then we realize wow words are powerful we're reminded often we're reminded often we're all guilty 
It's like Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. But people are to be cherished. And, and Peter is saying by the Holy Spirit that you need to love one another and, and in order to love one another, you need to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Those should not be a part of a Christian's life. These words have to do with conflict. Conflict is inevitable. You around people, you're going to have conflict. It must be dealt with, not avoided. A lot of us want to avoid conflict at all costs, even when it exists. But how do you avoid conflict, or how do you actually deal with conflict appropriately? It's right here in verse 1. Put away all malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander. Basically, banish the enemies of love. Do not, do not grant them re-entry into your life and your relationships. I mean, conflict is going to happen. But did you know there is no caveat in Scripture, no, no escape clause, no allowance in the Word of God for believers to not get along? It isn't there. Philippians 4.2, Paul says, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord tells me they weren't living in harmony and they were supposed to romans twelve eighteen says as far as possible live at peace with everyone and colossians three twelve says put on then as god's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts it's towards other people kindness humility meekness patience bearing with one another if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Refuse to complain about anyone or anything. You're like, for how long? <laughs> Five minutes? Can you go for a minute? You know, it's, uh, there are some people we know that just complain, complain, complain. Some of us can join into that, into that chorus of complaint. Refuse to complain about anyone or anything. You know what the tender-hearted true believer does in conflict? They're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they first ask, Lord, is it me? Is it I? Did I cause this? Am I the culprit? Jonathan Edwards resolved a lot of things. And one of the things he resolved was this. To act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as me. As if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others. And I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. That should break our hearts. How often we complain and backbite and fight. You know the reason why we need apotithemi? So you'll be loving to other believers and pleasing to God. The Holy Spirit teaches us to love one another with the love that God has put supernaturally in our hearts. That agape love. And I think every true believer deeply wants this Jesus-powered love for other people. Sometimes they can't break out of maybe the ruts they get into. But I think every true believer really desires that, that, that God-sized love for others. Peter was writing to Jew and Gentiles, believers in Christ who had previously been having huge animosity towards each other 
as different people groups and as all sorts of things going on. And he's telling them, you let go of all your former animosities. And you let go of any present or future ones that might, might crop up, might, might spring up, might come up through the cracks like weeds. Apotithemi. It's like roundup for sin. Take off this stuff from your life and, and don't put it back on. One of the ways the Bible uses apotithemi is by, by, of taking off clothes. And think about this. Let's say you take off some dirty, sweaty, smelly clothes and you throw them in the hamper, you throw them in the pile, whichever you use at your house, and the next day you wake up and you think, you know, I really like those clothes and let's just do the smell check, okay? And we'll smell, oh, it's not that bad. And I'm going to wear them again. And so you just kind of shake them off and put them back on. You do that day after day after day because you're like, I really like these clothes. But people won't hold your hand anymore. People won't talk to you closely anymore. Let's talk on the phone. Let's not meet one-on-one. Because you smell. And we think it's funny, right? Because that would be weird. A lot of people actually think that the words that Peter has been saying were used when people would get baptized. And they would, they would, you know, pronounce these words like, you have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren because you've obeyed the truth. And you're getting rid of all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. You're going to long for the, the milk of the word. It's interesting that when they would get baptized in those days, they would, they would take off their old clothes and they would be given new clothes. What, what Peter is saying in a metaphoric way is, you need to put off these old sinful clothes and put on this whole new suit of clothes that God has prepared for you. Romans 13, 12 says, cast off the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. Ephesians 4 says, put off the old self. It's corrupted. Put away falsehood. Hebrews 12 says, lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles. Colossians 3 says, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Don't go put those old clothes back on. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So what you see here is the first thing you need to, to, to grow is to kill sin. The fancy word is mortification. You know how we say, I'm mortified. Or let's go see the, let's go to the mortuary. You know, it's dealing with death here. Mortification is the fancy word. It means killing sin. One writer said, you kill sin or it will kill you. So think about it. Any, any sin that you're struggling with, or maybe you're not struggling with it. Maybe you haven't resisted it. You haven't refused it. You've invited it into your life. You've, you've even coddled it or encouraged it in your life. But any sin present in your life, which, by the way, might not feel very bad anymore. Maybe it did the first time you did it. But now you've become calloused or deceived and, and you think it's okay. Here's what you're to do. Actively and energetically, decisively put it away. Get rid of it. It's infestation. It's taking and, and exterminating what is infesting. 
For example, if you've got rats, mice, lice, cockroaches, any of those things, you want to get them out of your house. Well, what if your life or your heart has become infested with the vermin of the rats and mice and lice and cockroaches of sin? Well, you need to take decisive steps to get them out of your life. You need to do a little amputation. And it might be totally counterintuitive to how you feel about it. It might feel right, what you're doing. But if God says it's wrong, it's wrong. Now you sit here in church and you're like, well, it makes perfect sense right now. But in the heat of the moment, when you're alone or with someone else, you might not see it. That's why you need to be connected in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. In real, accountable, honest, connected community. You need to, brothers and sisters in Christ, to help you see the light and God's word, the light of God's word to illumine your path and expose any darkness. You need to stay in committed community with other believers. Be known. Know others. And as you do that, you've got to trust the Spirit of God. You've got to trust the Spirit of God in this process. One writer said, A man may easier see without eyes or speak without a tongue than mortify one sin apart from the Spirit of God. You can't kill sin apart from the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, by the Spirit's enabling, by the Spirit's empowerment, you put to death... By the way, if you have a King James Bible, that word is mortify... If you put to death, if you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. This command to put away sin is another way of saying what was said in chapter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What Peter is saying is you've been born again to a living hope. You have a new life. New life means new life. So love your Lord and love your family in Christ by saying no to sin especially the sins that harm the body. So the first thing we see, and it's a simple thing, but it's, it's one of the most complex things we'll do in life, and we can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit, is apotitheme, put away sin. Now we see a second thing. There's, there's just two things here. The second thing is epipatheo. You need apotitheme, but you also need epipatheo. And, and what you see in this word is Peter is now giving a fifth command. Peter is now giving this fifth imperative. Fix your hope on future grace. Be holy. Fear your heavenly Father. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And now another imperative, epipatheo. In verse 2, the idea is deeply desire God's word so that you grow up into salvation that you grow into the reality that God has given you so that you won't have stunted growth. It, and what he's talking about with epipatheo is an extreme desire for the word of God. If apotithomy is a, an extreme rejection of sin, epipatheo is an extreme desire for the word of God. Verse 2, we see the second thing you need to grow, epipatheo. Long for God's word like a newborn baby. All these words he's been using. You've been born again from seed that is, that is imperishable. And now like a newborn baby. 
brand new baby, so hungry, so, so dependent, so, so needy. He's saying, long for, have this intense personal desire for the good stuff, the word of God. This word is used in Hebrew and Greek. This Psalm 42, longing for God. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's longing for God. It's, it's longing for God's courts. Psalm 84. Paul uses this term about yearning for, to be with other believers and to long to see beloved brethren. I love that, uh, that, that grace is so full of brand new babies. You just got to love it. Everywhere you look, there's strollers and blankets and, and diapers and, 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 and cute little bundles of joy. You see a stroller coming up to you and you're like, there's a baby in there. The main attraction in that stroller is not, you know, the cool wheels or the flat screen. It is the baby inside. They come up to you and you're like, there's a watermelon in there. It's supposed to be a baby, you know. A watermelon will be all right, but I, well, I want to see a baby. It's, it's awesome to welcome young babies, little tiny babies into the, into the community and preach the gospel to them. Think about it. I love that a baby can hear the gospel in the womb before it learns a language. I love that. But, you know, Angela and I were blessed with five children. We are blessed with five children. But there are no diapers and all those things that come with babies around my house anymore because we're talking 22, 19, 16, 13, and 11 now. So one of the most tender pictures ever doesn't happen at my house, but it did. One of the most tender, loving, dear pictures to my heart is that of a, of a little baby being held in its, in its mommy's arms and, and, and feeding and being cared for and being nourished. Peter is saying, just like a baby longs for its mother and to be nourished by her, you need to long to be nourished by the word of God. Peter says, grow. You want to grow? You want oxano in your life? You need to be like newborn babies. So after you've gotten rid of the, the bad stuff, you're going to be able to hunger for the good stuff and that yearning should be just like a baby longing for its mother's milk. This intense personal desire for the word of God that the Holy Spirit will use to grow you up in Christ. Peter is not thinking about his hearers as being immature, by the way, or youngsters. Some of them would have been believers for over 30 years at this point when he wrote this letter. He says that you're to desire the word of God in the same way a baby longs for milk. How is that? Eagerly and frequently. Any sleep-deprived parent of a baby will tell you that about this eager and frequent longing. One thing you need to know is that this milk metaphor doesn't represent the elementary teaching of Christ as it does in 1 Corinthians 3.2 and Hebrews 5. It's very easy sometimes to go, oh, that same word is used in this other place. It must mean the same thing. It must be applied in the same way. The context is different. In, though, in Hebrews 5 and 1 Corinthians 3, it's milk being contrasted with solid food or meat. Here, Peter is saying, this is something that you need to eagerly desire for your ongoing nourishment and never stop. It, you long for it and never stop longing for it. 
crave it. Think about all the things we crave. In-N-Out burgers and chocolate and coconut water and garlic and all sorts of things that we just can't do without in life, right? But the Word of God, Peter is saying, is your necessary spiritual food for your entire life. Your entire life. When I became a believer in 1982, I decided I was going to read the Bible through. But when I got done, I was going to read it again. And when I finished, I would read it again and again and again. That's the plan. So the ribbon in my Bible is always where I'm reading through the Bible. I've got two ribbons, one where I'm preaching, one where I'm reading. Okay? Because the Word should be very near to us and in our hearts and it's, I, I, I'm convinced this is the spiritual nourishment that the Holy Spirit's going to use in my life till the end of my life here on earth. There's no plan B on this. It's the living and abiding Word of God. It's the inerrant, infallible, objective Word of God that He has given, He has provided, He has preserved and He uses powerfully in the lives of believers. And this milk of the word is without any additives. Did you notice? It says the pure spiritual milk. By the way, he's talking about the objective word of God, the written word of God. How do we know this? Well, the Greek word is logikos, therefore pure spiritual milk. And it's, it's got a di- couple different translations in the Bible. Reasonable, spiritual, and here, the pure milk of the word, basically. And it's in context He has just said, you have been born again by the living and abiding word of God. And now he's saying, this word is going to grow you. You're saved by the word, you'll be grown by the word. Just like you're saved by grace and you'll live by grace. And you'll serve by grace. You're saved by the word of God, you're you're grown by the word of God, you will continue to make progress by the word of God. And the Holy Spirit is doing that. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God in the lives of the people of God for the glory of God. How many times have you heard me say that? Don't let anything stand in your way. Go after the Word of God eagerly and frequently. It's pure. It's without additives. In those days, a dishonest merchant would would water down water or uh, milk, excuse me, water down water, uh, water down uh, milk or wine and sell it as, you know, full strength, dishonest. The word of God here, though, is pure and unadulterated, verse 2, right? It's in contrast with deceit in verse 1. Same Greek word, just with one letter added. Dalos and adalos, pure or impure. So he's saying, get rid of your deceit, your impure deceit, and you go after the very pure, the very unadulterated word of God. Do it with gusto. You know what gusto is, right? Big enthusiasm. You throw everything into it. At least that's what I think gusto means. And by the way, I love how God doesn't just say, hey, don't do that. He shows you the good thing you should focus on. For every bad thing rejected, there is the good thing, the corresponding acceptance of something good. Here it is him and his word. Hebrews 12 illustrates this. Hebrews 12 too. Lay aside every sin and lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles and run with endurance the race set before and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Ephesians 2 talks about it. Put off the old self that's being corrupted, renewed in your mind, put on the new self. Put away falsehood, speak truth. 
Colossians 3, put to death what is earthly in you. Put them all away. Put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator because Christ is all and in all. The idea is that if you're intent on Jesus and God's word, you're not going to mess around with sin. The gospel will change your outlook and your priorities. You put away sin, apotithemi, long epitheo for the milk of the word so that you would grow into salvation, grow into the new life you have in Christ. That's it. And verse 3 puts it all together. This extreme rejection of sin and extreme desire for God's word finds its pinnacle in verse 3 when, when he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Who's the Lord? Tell me, who's the Lord? Out loud, who's the Lord? Jesus. Yeah, say it again. Who's the Lord? Jesus. Jesus, yes. And in fact, Peter has been so intent on telling us this. It's the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He saw over and over again, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. That word if also means since. Since you've tasted, indeed you've tasted that God is good, that the Lord is good. He's quoting Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's applying it to the Lord Jesus who gave himself for our sins. So this extreme desire for the word of God is present because You have an appetite for the things of God because you've been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem comes when a person who professes faith in Christ says, I have no appetite for the things of God. My taste buds are gone. I I can't, I can't, I just can't get any of it. I'm lost. I don't know what's going on. That's cause for caution and self-examination and ask yourself the question why why do i not desire the word of god very often in our lives what happens is the viscosity of the spirit in our life gets gunked up by sin i'm using oil terms here right oil change terms it breaks down and and things get all gunked up then and gets all clogged up Talk about arteries, you know, clogged arteries, things like this. And you've got to do what Peter says. Put away sin and long for the word. It's this dual concurrent action that you're, you're doing one thing while going towards another thing. It, it's the idea of repentance. Turning away from sin and turning towards God. It, it's repentance. It's, it's not just, well, I'm going to keep doing that sin and I'm going to be following Jesus. You can't. You're not a push-me-pull-you, right? You can't go both directions. You can't have your foot on the gas and your foot on the brake at the same time. So how will you know if you have got real growth going on in your life? How will you know if it's real or false? I mean, look, growing in Christ can be a very tricky proposition. Because we can trick ourselves into thinking we're growing when we're not. Well, I know the Bible really well. Well, if you're not living it, James says, you know, you're deluding yourself. So you have all this head knowledge, but it hasn't gotten down into your heart, into your hands, into your feet, into your mouth. Well, then you're just taking info in. 
You got to have this concurrent combo of saying no to sin and yes to Jesus that brings real growth and evident progress. James 1.21 says this, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Say no to sin. And then he says, receive with meekness, humility, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Desire God and his word. You can't say yes to sin and, and yes to the word of God and grow. You're going to be in conflict. You're going to have calloused heart towards the word of God. You can't say yes to sin and no to the word of God and not think you're going to get messed up. And you can't go, hey, I'm going to say no to sin and no to God because then you'll become a, basically a, a functional practicing atheist. Moralistic. The only good option is to say no to sin and yes to Jesus and yield to his authority and his lordship and his will. Now, I realize I gave you three Greek words today. You know, oxano, apotithemi, and epipatheo. But I want to make it memorable. You're probably going to forget these words, okay? Write them down if you'd like. They're good words. But to make it maybe practically memorable in your life, think about a traffic light, okay? A traffic light. You're all going to be in traffic today. Even if you're on your bike, you'll still see signals, right? Red, yellow, green, right? So think of it this way. Red light. That means what? Stop. Say no to sin. Apotithemi. Green light. What does that mean? You're good. Say yes to Jesus and his word. Epipatheo. Yellow light. What does it mean? Floor it, right? <laughs> Yellow light means caution. Probably slow down or else you'll get a ticket if you're going on Jeffrey Road in Irvine going up the hill uh, 20 years ago. Still remember. Really nice officer. Very kind. Um, caution. Trust God for wisdom. Uh, not everything in life has a, a Bible verse attached to it. Who should I marry? Where should I work? What should I do? You've got to trust God for wisdom. You're in the danger zone? Trust God for wisdom. You're confused? Trust God for wisdom. So red light, stop, say no to sin. Green light, go, say yes to Jesus. Let's say you're tooling along in your life and God hasn't zapped you or anything, so you're thinking, hey, everything's good. But you're engaging in ongoing sinful practices, living a double life, and you're, you're canceling things out, and maybe the Holy Spirit has kind of nudged you or rocked you, or, or, or another believer has actually tried to talk to you. There's only one thing to do. Confess your sins. Admit it. Repent from your sins. Turn from your sins. In your heart. It's a spiritual U-turn, basically. That's repentance. That's what, that's what these three verses are talking about. If you want to grow in Christ, you need to say no to sin and yes to Jesus in his word. That, that's it. And, and you've got you to gotta remember, it's not about the growth, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. So cling to what he has done. Romans 8, we heard it really well last week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemns sin in the flesh. You know what happens when you come to faith in Christ? You are being progressively freed from the magnet pull of sin if you're going along with God, if you're, if you're cooperating with Him. What did Paul say? Galatians 6.14 Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, the power to say no to sin, the power to say yes to Jesus comes from Christ's decisive defeat of sin at the cross. The power to long for the word of God comes because the word of God causes us to be born again and grows us. And it is all about Jesus. It's not about our growth. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. You gotta say no to sin. I'm gonna keep on saying it, all right? We're, gonna, we're landing the plane, but I'm gonna just keep saying it one more time. Extreme rejection of sin. You know how it feels when it seems like someone doesn't like you? You know how you feel? You need to make sin feel like that. Sin is not your friend. And, and to say Jesus, say yes, Jesus, and, and, and yes to his word, you have to have this extreme craving for the word of God. You know when you crave something and you just have to have it? Chocolate, in and out burger, whatever else you want. What if it's not good for you? You have to reject the crave. You've got to crave the best thing, the word of God. Your food for the rest of your life as a, as a, as a Christian. Because you know Jesus and have experienced his, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his grace, taste and see that the Lord is good. You've seen sin ruin a lot of lives. You've seen God do so many miracles. You've seen God provide so much. You know how good he is. And the knowledge of that goodness feeds your desire for him and his word. Lord God, thank you that you are the one that is keeping us going. That you are faithful and dependable and you have provided everything we need in life right now. And Lord, we want, we desire to actively reject sin and actively crave your word. And, and we acknowledge that you are good. We acknowledge that you give ourselves, you give us yourself and your word. And by your spirit, you grow us. So Lord, by your grace, fix our hope and our thoughts and our desires and our affections, our present and our future, our job, our relationships, our worries, our joys, our everything on Jesus the one who has been crucified and buried and is risen and coming again. We pray in his name. Amen.